I'd like to begin by just talking a bit about how the world was 2,500 years ago, and uh, at the time that this person we call the Buddha was born and uh, lived his life. It was a time when uh, there had been a lot of changes taking place with the development of agriculture, the development of more complex societies and technology. Of course, when we looked back then, it may look like they didn't have much technology, but they actually had some pretty amazing technology uh, for that time in terms of what it allowed them to do. Things like looms and the ability to weave large amounts of cloth, whereas a few generations earlier, uh, Basically, you know, you made your own clothing. You had to trade, commerce. Uh, people in very distant areas were exchanging all kinds of goods and information. There was a time that, as a result of all of this, there were large surpluses available, and life was less of a struggle than it had been before. At least for some. <laughs> and overall, it was less of a struggle. Um, everything was was uh, attaining a level of sophistication, uh, comfort, expansion, growth, development. Uh, as a matter of fact, the period is called the axial age because uh, most of the things that characterize uh, human culture and human society in the world today had their origins back in that period. Um, one of the things that the surpluses that came from agricultural developments and things like that, the surplus wealth made it possible to maintain standing armies. And as what had been cultures that were focused on... Uh, Let's go to sleep. Sorry. Okay. Thanks. Uh, that that uh, cultures that were... Uh, basically village, tribal, uh, smaller group cultures, these uh, societies were expanding and becoming larger. They were becoming kingdoms. And with the, the wealth, of course, the king or whoever was in charge could maintain an army. And of course it became tempting to take over some of the adjacent kingdoms. And this was a, this was a process that was taking in the wor uh, place in the world at large, is that uh, gradually, these larger kingdoms, empires were developing, expanding, and and it was a it was a reality of the times that you pretty well had to uh, expect that uh, either your people were going to attack the people next door to try to take them over, or they were going to attack you. It was just the way things were back in those days. They haven't changed that much. <laughs> it's just where, uh, it's just quite recently, really. The world's become so crowded and so dangerous that uh, we're a lot more hesitant to do these things than, than we once were. There was uh, a tremendous amount of intellectual fermentation taking place. Philosophy, uh, the beginnings of science, um, took a lot of different forms. Uh, uh, 
astrology and uh, things and, and various things like that were regarded as sciences. But still, what you see in that was the attempt to uh, discern the rules, the order behind uh, the way the universe worked, the way the world worked, to discover to discover the, the patterns that could, by understanding them, could reveal why things happened the way they did and give you the knowledge necessary to make things happen the way you'd like them to happen. Right? Which is really one way of describing what science is. The study of causality. Once we know the rules of causality, then we can manipulate them we want. So this is, this is the world that the Buddha was born into. And he was a prince in a small kingdom. And um, the hopes of his father is that he would become a great king, which would mean, at the very least, protecting the kingdom. But more likely, it meant that he would be successful in raising an army and invading the neighbors and the kingdom would grow and become bigger as a result of that. And as a prince, of course, the good side of being a prince was that you had everything that you wanted. You had wealth. You had comfort. You had leisure. You had edu education. We don't really know too much about the Buddha's education, but we know in those days that there were some very great centers of education that were uh, not too far from the small kingdom that the Buddha grew up in. So there's a very good chance that as a part of his training, he spent some time in those centers and probably became acquainted with uh, thought from uh, as far away as, as Greece or perhaps even Egypt. Uh, he was obviously intelligent. He was very sensitive. Um, and he, he, he could see where his life was heading. He was to take over from his father. He was to be the great king. He was to be responsible for all of these people. They're, you know, to, to the degree that any leader had integrity, and, and actually a leader had to have a certain degree of integrity or he would, he would be overthrown or replaced by someone else. But in order for a leader, a king that had any integrity, he had the responsibility for looking after the welfare of the people in his kingdom. And that was a great responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And so the Buddha could see that the burden of this responsibility was soon going to be his. And part of that was going to be uh, was going to be war. It was going to be mounting armies uh, either to defend the kingdom, or to expand the kingdom, or more than likely both, because that's the way things went in those days. If you if you read the the suttas, the accounts of the Buddha's life, he had a lot of he, he traveled around different places and he had a lot of interactions with different kings and discussions with them. And that was what was going on in the world: is that the kings were attacking each other and they were conquering each other, and sometimes you won, sometimes you lose. So what I'm trying to do is give you a picture of here you have a, a very intelligent, very sensitive, uh, probably very well-educated person 
who's being groomed to occupy this position of uh, responsibility. He was a member of the warrior caste. I mean, that is, that's who the rulers were, of course, were members of the warrior caste. Now, <clears throat> actually there was a prophecy made when he was born that he would either become a great spiritual leader or a great king. Of course, his father wanted him to become a great king. The spiritual leader part, the other thing about this time when there was there was so much abundance is that it freed up a lot of people for the pursuit of philosophy and spirituality and things like this. And so, as you will find if you if, if you read any of the texts from that period, if you read the sutras, the accounts of the Buddha, there were many thousands and thousands of wanderers, ascetics, who they didn't work for a living. They uh, they lived off of the uh, the dana, the donations of uh, people, lay people, who supported them in the spiritual life. And religion was a very important part of life in those days, as it always has been ever since. And philosophy and religion are very closely intertwined. The interesting thing is that the Buddha, the person we call the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, and we don't really know much about how this happened, but we can surmise, at some point he looked at where his life was heading, and he was very troubled by it. And in spite of all the improvements that were taking place in life at those time, at that time, what he saw is that people continued to suffer and that there was, there was a tremendous amount of suffering in the world, that um, most of the suffering was really beyond people's control. Of course, there were fortunate individuals, as he was, who uh, had material wealth and comfort and so forth. But even for someone like himself, he could see that sickness, physical injury, aging, and death were inevitable. But even more than that, even the people that, even when you were healthy and you had everything you wanted, you weren't always happy. There were things that you wanted that you didn't have, and there were things that you didn't want that you did have. And he came, I think I could justify saying obsessed with the fact of all the suffering in the world. And here he was about to be made responsible for taking care of all of the subjects of his father's realm. Uh, and knowing that there really was not much he could do about their suffering. There was so much of that was inevitable, so much of it was not in anyone's control. Droughts and wars and, and uh, crop failures and diseases, and, and there was nothing he could do. So, he made the decision to leave home. And what he was in pursuit of was, I think, on one hand, it was clearly some understanding of why things are the way they are. But more than that, he wanted, some, he wanted a solution. 
he was determined to find some kind of a solution, if there was one. If it was only understanding he wanted, well, he could have engaged in philosophy, uh, speculation, entertained himself with all sorts of uh, intellectual uh, debate and discussion about why things are the way they are, or could have felt very good about himself for uh, having to come to some kind of conclusions about this is the way things were. But if we, if you look at what happened, he he was determined to find some sort of solution, some sort of answer. He, when he left home, he he spent time with two different teachers, one right after another, who were reputed to be amongst the amongst the wisest of the spiritual teachers of that time. And in both cases, he basically learned all they had to teach. He understood their system uh, of, of uh, philosophy and their system of practice so well that both of these teachers invited him to basically take over. The first teacher said, said, you know everything I do, um, let's, let's lead this bunch together. The Buddha said, no, thank The second teacher, after he spent time with him, actually said, uh, I think you know this better than I do. Uh, you know at least as much as my teacher did. Why don't you take over? The Buddha said, no, thanks. And went on to pursue the solution to the problem of suffering. Now, here's where, here's where we start to... We, we, what doesn't often happen is people don't look very closely at what it was he learned from those teachers and why he rejected it. Those teachers reflected uh, pretty widespread views in those times, which we'll be talking about. Uh, karma and reincarnation. Basically, the view that was commonly held was that it was a cycle of re reincarnation. You're born, you suffer, you die. And then you're reborn, <clears throat> you suffer some more, and you die again. And essentially, what those teachers, what most of the spiritual teachers of those days were looking for, is a way to get out of this cycle. And so when someone like the Buddha came along and said, I see all this suffering in the world. What's the solution? How, what, how can we bring an end to suffering? They were given the typical spiritual answers of the day. And in this particular case of these two teachers, you do a practice. And if you're successful in this practice, then when you die, when you die, you won't be reborn anymore. And what the Buddha was rejecting was that idea that there's nothing you can do. The only salvation comes when you die. And the only, the only redemption you get is to not be reborn. <laughs> and he, he said, that's not good enough. If it's true, if what, if what they were teaching him was true, then uh, even so, it wasn't what he was looking for. And he was going to try to find something different. What he was looking for was how 
an end to suffering can actually be brought about. The end to individual suffering, and I think uh, ultimately the, an end to suffering in general. That's what he wanted the answer to, and that's why he rejected these, these particular teachings and this particular method. He went on from there to take up ascetic practices where basically they meant depriving yourself, torturing yourself, putting yourself in situations where you experienced extreme discomfort. And the point was to overcome suffering by confronting it head on. Stand in the sun on one leg without eating, uh, sleep on a bed of nails, uh, do all kinds of horrible things to yourself, and try to overcome suffering in that way. The idea was that if you could conquer this self-inflicted suffering, then you would have conquered suffering in general, and you'd be free from it from then on. And can you see why he found that more appealing? In, in spite of the method looking like a really nasty way to go, he found that more appealing than a practice that would allow you to sit in this beautiful trance-like state, uh, uh, which would allow you to cease to exist once and for all after you died. So you can't really understand the Buddha unless you can understand why he tossed the one alternative in favor of the other. Is it what, what, they were what his first two teachers were teaching was a kind of jhana practice, which leads to blissfulness. But it's, kind of, it's a kind of blissful unconsciousness. Or it's, it's, it's a trance-like bliss. It's not the same kind of jhana that he later taught himself, although he learned a lot of really important things from it. The idea was you sit in this bliss-like state where you were about as close as you could get as a living being to not existing as a separate being. It might be described as becoming one with Brahma or things like this. But essentially, you became lost in this blissful state. And the idea being, if you spent enough time doing that, when you died, then you would, you would become permanently one with Brahma and never be reborn. And he said, no, I don't want to sit around in bliss waiting to die. Uh, I want to find out if there's a way to overcome suffering. And so when these other teachers, these ascetics with their practices, their austerities, said, this is how you do it. You, you confront suffering head on and you conquer it and then you're free from suffering. So he tried that out. It was more in line with what he was interested in. But then after he did that for quite a while, several years, I mean, probably, I guess, somewhere between three and five years, he came to the conclusion that that wasn't it. He, he, I do all these kinds of things to myself, and I can't even think clearly, and I'm still suffering, and I'm no closer to, uh, to the goal that I'm after. So he gave that up as well. And that's the point at which he took his own initiative to pursue truth himself, found the truth he needed, found the liberation from suffering, and then he ended up teaching it for 45 years after that. So 
So what we're going to look at is we're going to try to try to discern as clearly as possible <clears throat> what it was that the Buddha figured out that made such a dramatic difference. Because what the Buddha did was teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's what he left home for, is to crack the secret of suffering and bring about the end of suffering. He was not interested in philosophy or cosmology or metaphysics. Most especially religion. Because the first things he tried were basically religious practices. Maybe we'll say a little bit about religion here. Religion is a very important part of human existence. And one of the things that religion does focus on is suffering and the relief of suffering. Other things that religion focuses on are maintaining social stability, providing a basis for ethical behavior, which is a really important part of social stability. So, religion is, and probably always will be, a really important part of the fabric of, of human culture. But a lot of what religion offers is short-term short -term pain relief. It, it offers views and beliefs that make you feel better in the short term. Or promise you something better in the future. Which is one way of making you feel better in the short term. Right? Makes it easier to take the situation that you're in. And that's precisely one of the things that the Buddha rejected. He rejected something that only provided a short-term comfort or that only provided some kind of uh, uh, ultimate escape, but with a lot of suffering in between. It wasn't what he was looking for. So he had absolutely no intention of creating religion. And all that he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. Now, as it turns out, the way he, the, the path that he found to the end of suffering involved acquiring a certain kind of wisdom, an understanding of the nature of, of what it meant to be a human being, nature of the human mind, and some things about the nature of reality, the ultimate nature of reality. This, this was what, it was this wisdom that he discovered that was the key to bring about the end of suffering. And, of course, as I've already said, religion deals with suffering, religion deals with cosmology, the way things are. Philosophy deals with these same kinds of issues, what is the nature, what is human nature, what is the nature of reality. So, all of the things that the Buddha taught about lent themselves, were readily just latched onto and made into religion 
and made into philosophy and made into metaphysics because they were about the same things that religion and philosophy and metaphysics were all, are all about. So they were the very, it was inevitable. It had to happen. For if, his, if, if what he taught and what he had to say had any value and significance at all, any validity to it, it was bound to be made into religion. And it was bound to be turned into philosophy. There was really no other possibility. And that keeps on happening. The Buddha's teaching takes on different forms in every place that it's introduced. And the same thing is going to happen here. It comes into North America and Europe, comes into the West. It's it comes in already made into religion and already made into philosophy. But even if it didn't, you can bet that we'd make it into religion and we'd make it into philosophy. But we're going to do that. Might as well accept it. <laughs> the same way everybody else has done it. But we don't need to accept the religion and philosophy that other people in other cultures at other times have attached to the Buddhist teaching. Especially, we don't need to bend our own heads all out of shape you know, in trying to make somebody else's religion and philosophy fit us. Better we do it the other way around. Better we try to understand, well, what is it that he taught that was, that was so good and useful and lasting that it has taken on the form of these different religions and philosophies? And let's, let's adapt it to our own use. So that's what I'm talking about now, is let's try to understand what it was that the Buddha himself discovered, what the Buddha thought, what the Buddha believed, or what the Buddha came to know through his awakening, through the wisdom that he acquired. Free from all of the stuff that has been added on to it, attached to it in one way or another. So that's that's what I'm after. We're going to look at the evidence we have and try to figure out what is it that the Buddha really thought and we'll discard everything else. And when we do this, what we're going to find is a whole lot of this stuff is really... It's really relevant to our situation in the world right now. It's extremely relevant. And it's relevant in ways that are completely different than it was in China or Japan or India or Tibet or Sri Lanka or Thailand or Burma. But that's the thing about things that are true in this particular way, is that they're always relevant. To the degree that something is a reflection of ultimate truth, it's going to be relevant to absolutely every situation. And so what the Buddha discovered is hugely relevant to us. But we'll be able to make the best use of it if we can see it clearly with all of the other stuff cleared out of the way. Okay? So, how can we know if something we read or hear about Buddhism really reflects the Buddha's own teaching? So, there's some things that we can do, some tools we can use to examine things. First of all, 
when the Buddha gave his very first teaching after his awakening, um, and this was to uh, five men who had been companions of his during his his uh, search for uh, for wisdom. They'd done the same uh, austerities, the same ascetic practices. They'd studied with various teachers. They were quite familiar with the various philosophical and religious doctrines of the day. And they were very dedicated in the same way the Buddha was to uh, this, this search for, for wisdom and for answers. And when he gave them that teaching, he said, there arose in me the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the illumination concerning things not heard before. He said that at his very first teaching, and he repeated that many other times throughout his teaching, that I'm teaching you something that you aren't going to come across, that you haven't already come across. It's not a part of the common beliefs of this time. And so knowing that, we can look at what the various versions of Buddhism offer us. And we can say any doctrine that belongs to another non-Buddhist tradition or that was widely accepted prior to the Buddha's birth should automatically be considered suspect. This probably isn't what the Buddha discovered that made such a difference. Does that make sense to you? He came up with something new and different. So if somebody comes along to you and says, oh, this is, this is Buddhism, this, and then you say, well, that's the same thing that everybody believed before he was ever born. Or that's the same thing that they believed in in some other culture or something like that. Well, maybe true, but probably not. Second thing is that the teachings of the Buddha have a tremendous, an amazing internal consistency when you really understand them. Okay. I'm going to ask you to take my word for this. Because if you've done much reading in Buddhism, what you've probably found is a lot of inconsistency and contradiction and things that are hard to reconcile with each other. Has anybody had that experience? Yeah. And those of you that haven't, if, if, you, if you become serious about understanding this in your own personal search for truth, you're going to come into that. A lot of contradictions. And, uh, but if you, if you follow things carefully, if you keep in mind that when you, when you hear two different, or when you come across two different things, it's really hard to reconcile with each other. Choose the one that's most consistent with everything else that the Buddha taught. And if you do that, after a while, out of this confusing picture of conflict will emerge something that's really crystal clear and it just it holds together in an amazing way. Really wonderfully well. Yes? Could you give an example of something, teachings that are inconsistent? Well... One of the most glaring things is that is that one really 
uh, I, I gave a talk once at uh, uh, a Buddhist university in California. What's the name of that place? What? University of the West. Uh, University of the West. And the topic I was asked to speak on uh, was was the crux of Buddhism. I identified the crux of Buddhism as the doctrine of no self. There is no no anatta, anatman. There is no separate self, soul, and and this this is a key part of Buddhist teaching. And what's in direct conflict with that are the things you will part of, find as a part of common part of Buddhist religions, which are uh, reincarnation. That you die, and uh, some part of you survives that as a separate self, or soul, or Atman, and it goes and acquires a new piece of flesh and it grows into a new being. There is absolutely no reasonable way to reconcile no self and reincarnation. So that would be an example. Uh, but it actually goes back to the, our previous... Uh, the doctrine of reincarnation existed for thousands of years before the Buddha, in exactly the form that you often find it in Buddhist religions. So on the one hand, you, you find that uh, no self and reincarnation uh, are really in conflict with each other and really hard to reconcile. And of course, you find some really intelligent people that write some long, complicated... Uh, as a matter of fact, the average person won't get past the first couple of chapters of their books that are attempting to reconcile these two things. You know, but uh, hopefully when I get finished with the weekend, though, you'll see a consistency and you'll agree with me. You'll say, wow, it's all, it's totally consistent. It makes sense. There's no conflict in it. Once, once you discard the ideas that don't fit for one reason or another, does that, does that work for you as an example? There's quite a few others. But the third test that you can apply is if we recall that right after the Buddha's awakening, he thought to himself, this dhamma that I have attained is profound and hard to see, hard to discover, not attainable by mere ratiocination. They just say mere thinking, but anyway. <laughs> it's subtle for the wise to experience. If I taught this dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. And so his initial thought was, there's no point in me trying to tell anybody about this. Because it's it's too it's too subtle, it's too difficult. It just I just get frustrated trying to make them understand me. Now, one thing that this tells us is that anything that you come across that is really really simple is probably an oversimplification, uh, or it's not really what. The Buddha, it's not part of the wisdom that the Buddha discovered, rather it's something that's come from some other source. As far as the oversimplification, in, in my experience, I, as for, I guess, 40 years, I have been devoted to Buddhism, studying Buddhism, and practicing Buddhism, in many different forms. Yeah. Tibetan, and Theravadan, and, uh, 
looked at uh, various forms of Chinese, Buddhism, and so forth. And what you see in every culture, every culture has two forms of Buddhism. It's got what you might call the exoteric street version and the esoteric, sophisticated version. <clears throat> and the one, the exoteric, involves a tremendous amount of oversimplification and a tremendous amount of incorporation of pre-existing beliefs from the cultures that Buddhism has gone into in order to create a Buddhist religion in a culture that, that meets the needs of the people and serves the purpose of a religion in a culture. You know, everything that is subtle must be made simple. And the beliefs that people come with need to be accommodated. Otherwise, otherwise they won't be willing to accept uh, this new belief system. So this is what's happened with Buddhism wherever it's gone. Um, right from the beginning was the process of, of oversimplification. And so when you come across Buddhist teachings that are really ridiculously simple, you know something's missing. I'll give you an example of that. The Four Noble Truths. How many of you have heard the Four Noble Truths? And you can rattle it off. Uh, life is all life is suffering, craving is the cause of suffering, and the craving is the end of suffering, right? All life is suffering. That's something, how did the Buddha put it, never spoken before? Concerning things not heard before? <laughs> not very likely. <laughs> not very likely. There's much more to the truth of suffering than, than this. So, so when somebody presents a piece of Buddhist doctrine that that is ridiculously simple, then the reaction in your mind should be, okay, what did the Buddha really say? I can't believe that he went to his previous companions and crowed about how he discovered something so wonderfully different and then said something as absurdly simple and, and self-evident as that. What did he really say? That's, that's what I'd like you to ask when you come across that. Okay, the other thing is that the Buddhist, he described it as subtle. And it is subtle. It is not complicated. You don't have to have an IQ of 160 to understand what the Buddha taught. You don't have to be a logician. You don't have to be a genius. The logic behind everything the Buddha taught is really straightforward. Bam, bam, bam. It's this, then that. It's, it's, it's quite simple and straightforward. What makes it difficult is that you have to let go of certain assumptions that we cling to very strongly. That's what makes it subtle. And so you don't need to be a genius, but you do need to be open-minded. If you're not open-minded, then the Buddhist teaching is just going to be impenetrable. If you're trying to hold on to this particular assumption and then follow the Buddha's logic, 
it's not going to make any sense. You have to let go of your assumptions and see where the logic takes you. What happens very often and causes the, 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 the shelves in the Buddhist section of the library to sag in the middle <laughs> are the, the books written by people, very intelligent people, because somebody that's not real bright can't do this. Very intelligent people that are trying to take what the Buddha thought and these assumptions that they're not willing to get to let go of and reconcile them. So they write a book this thick, trying to prove that black is really white, and that's what the Buddha was saying. So convoluted, complex logic. Somebody teaches you something and says, says, okay, this is probably too complicated for you to understand. I'd say back to them, that means you don't understand it either. <laughs> it's not complicated, but it's very challenging. Because we don't even know most of us. We don't even know the assumptions that we're holding on to that act as such tremendous obstacles to understanding new ideas and new ways of thinking. And as you start to discover what those are, then, then you, have to, you have to teach yourself to let go of them. You have to open yourself up and be willing to... Uh, to look at things in a different way. Any comments anybody would like to make on what I've talked about? These three ways of evaluating teachings that can help you. To can I just make a comment? I see a lot of people writing. There, there are handouts of all of this information. Yeah, there's a longer handout for everybody who's planning to stay the weekend. And, and actually, make sure that you. Uh, Make sure that you get it before you leave so that you can look at it before you come back tomorrow. I'm just writing my grocery list. Oh, okay. As <laughs> long as it's something important. Ow. <laughs> and it's up to you to decide what's important. <laughs> Zero notes. Okay. <clears throat> so another thing uh, we need to look at is how the Buddha taught. Because what we have, what's come down to us from 2,500 years, are a massive collection of uh, discourses. They're called suttas. But each one is a discourse on a particular subject. To a particular person or to a particular group that is an audience. And what you find, what you find in there well, depending on what, if you, if you go to read those suttas and you're looking for absolute truth, if you're going to treat those suttas like the Word of God, like the Bible, although actually the Bible is much more like the suttas than the people who want to take it literally. But, you know, if, if you're going to read and say, well, every word the Buddha uttered must be an expression of absolute truth you're going to find yourself very, very frustrated. Because that's not how he taught. Um, remember, his, his goal, he, he, didn't, he didn't speak to somebody in order to deliver to them the right philosophy. What he spoke to, the purpose he had in mind in speaking to them, 
was to help guide them in the direction of freeing themselves from the suffering that they were subject to. That was his goal. Now he was a doctor applying the medicine. But so when he was talking to people that held one set of beliefs, if the point he was trying to make wasn't totally obstructed by the beliefs they already held, he went along with it. Okay, you know, so you believe this, that's, that's fine. He would have he would have talked to um, he would have talked to a Christian not that there were any Christians in those days, but if he talked to talked to a Christian, he would have talked to them in Christian terms. If he talked to a Muslim, he would have talked to them in Muslim terms. If he talked to uh, any of the various Hindu schools, he would have talked to them in their own terms. He would have met them where they were and tried to guide them to a, a deeper and more useful, better understanding. To, and so, if you find him talking to different people, as though the beliefs they held uh, were held by him, then uh, it's going to be very confusing to you. He, he believed too many conflicting things. But on the other hand, there's a different way of reading those sutras. Fortunately, all of the sutras begin telling you when and where and to whom he was speaking. And in most cases, you can look at, if you do this, if you, if you, before you make any judgments about the contents of that sutra, you just say, okay, this is who he was speaking to, and this is where they were probably coming from. And then what this sutra is about is this particular point. He was trying to make this particular point here. Okay. So if you keep in mind who he was speaking to and the point that he was trying to make, then you can glean what the Buddha thought from that sutra and not be confused by what the other fellow thought that he wasn't interested in contradicting because contradicting it didn't serve his purpose of making the point he was trying to make. And but you, if, once you see the point he was trying to make, then it can help you to uh, understand his his teaching and his goal in speaking to that person the way that he did. So, when you understand how the Buddha taught, you can read the Buddha's teaching and understand them much more clearly. Now, probably most of you aren't. I, I wish you would. You'd absolutely love it. But it's very difficult to go and, and read these different suttas. And most of you probably aren't going to make a career of it. <laughs> but some of you might. But if you do, that's the secret. I'll, I'll give you this gift. If you decide to take up Buddhist studies, get a degree in it at the university or something, this is this is the key. It'll make your life so simple and you'll catch on to everything so quickly. Is take into account who he was speaking to and the point he was trying to make. And that key will open up the significance of what he was saying. And also will allow you to know what was not really what's not really relevant to this point. Okay. And so yeah, you keep in mind 
but he was teaching suffering and the end of suffering. He wasn't teaching a religion, or philosophy, or cosmology, or metaphysics. And that will help you a lot. Does it have a name? What? Does it have a name? I always thought it was a philosophy. It's called Buddha Dharma. That's what. That's that's that is what it's called. Buddha means the uh, awakened one, and Dharma means truth. So it's the truth of the awakened one. But I mean, it is it is a kind of philosophy, but it's not it's not a system of philosophy. It's a philosophy that is very goal directed. As it turns out, that. There is a Buddhist philosophy. There's a philosophy in this. But it's not philosophy for its own sake. And see, that's where the problem is. And this happens, oh, this happens so much in Buddhism. Is that because there is a philosophy in it, if you take it on as a philosophy, then it becomes totally intellectual. You will, you will derive none of the benefits that it's that are its real purpose. It will not understanding it intellectually, debating it with other people, arguing this point versus that point. You spend your whole life doing that, and it will not make you suffer any less, be any happy, or even really make you much wiser in in a true sense, because it's only intellectual understanding. So, so that's the danger of it as philosophy. I should say, the danger of it is as philosophy only, when it becomes excessively intellectualized. Because, of course, uh, it is philosophy, and the more deeply you understand it, then uh, the easier it's going to be for you to, to go beyond the intellectual uh, grasping of it to the intuitive understanding of it. And the easier it's going to be for you to apply the significance of that in your life, which is really what it's all about. So anyway, he taught suffering and the end of suffering. So I'm just going to, I know I've gone over this with you, many of you have been in past teachings when I've gone over this. We're going to go over the Four Noble Truths again. Suffering and the end of suffering. The truth about suffering, put in its simplest terms, pain is inevitable but suffering is optional. That, that, that other version of the first noble truth, life is full of suffering, it's totally true, but there's nothing profound in that. There's nothing brilliant. There's nothing useful in that mm -hmm. at all. The Buddha made a distinction between different kinds of suffering, and there is... There is... Well, actually between different kinds of dukkha, and you have to understand this word dukkha is, it's, dukkha is not suffering. Dukkha is much broader than that. Dukkha is every kind of unsatisfactoriness, every kind of dissatisfaction. So, when you have an unpleasant physical sensation, that's definitely unsatisfactory, right? When it makes you agonizingly miserable. That's a different kind of suffering. And 
what the Buddha realized very clearly, and I think maybe his, his ascetic practices helped to make this really clear in him, is that an unpleasant sensation is an unpleasant sensation. What makes it into suffering is the mind's reaction to it. And so, yes? Can you repeat the last part again? Yes. That an unpleasant sensation is just an unpleasant sensation. What makes it suffering is the mind's reaction to it. And this is something that absolutely everybody can demonstrate to themselves, and should. Because you haven't even even begun to understand what the Buddha is talking about until you understand this point. Once again, there's nothing, nothing difficult about it, nothing mysterious, nothing complicated, and you can find it out from your own experience. You all know this. You all have this experience. You've all experienced what we would describe as physical pain in circumstances where you did not suffer because of it. And you've, at other times you've suffered something that was far less painful in the purely physical sense, but it caused you much more exquisite suffering. A, a, a good example is an itch. How much you can suffer from an itch. Okay. Yeah. How bad does an itch really hurt? Anyway, that's something to discover on your own. But, <laughs> but the whole point is that you have no control over your body and the things that happen to your body. Well, let me put that differently. You do have some control over your body. But, but you, you can't avoid illness and, and injury and all kinds of other things that cause physical discomfort, physical pain. There's nothing you can do about that. Unless you die in the next instant, you're going to experience pain. Pain is inevitable. But you do not need to suffer, because if you understand that suffering is the mind's reaction to it, we don't have... We don't have control over our physical bodies in the sense that we can prevent pain ever happening. But we have far more influence over our mind and the mind's reaction. And really, it doesn't come till the fourth step. But what the Buddha is promising is there's a way to train your mind so that you don't suffer when you experience pain. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Suffering is completely optional. In order to know how to make suffering optional, you have to understand how it works. So, the truth about the cause of suffering. Why why do we suffer when we have a pain? Or look at some of the other kinds of suffering that don't involve pain at all. You, You lose something that you want, or someone that you want. And it hurts. It doesn't hurt physically. It only hurts mentally. You do it to yourself, totally. Your mind does it to itself, right? All these different kinds. Most, most of the worst suffering that you have in your life, your mind does it to itself. And so, if you can understand how it is that the mind does that, then you'll have a key. Maybe you can make suffering part optional. So what he's saying here is that the craving for things to be different than they are is the root cause of all suffering real obvious instant is if somebody's standing on your toe, you crave to have them not standing on your toe. 
<laughs> if if you if you are very attached to something and it's destroyed, then you want it to not be destroyed. You want to still have it. And so on it goes. If you examine carefully, ultimately, every form of suffering that you experience, that your mind generates, is a result of the same little formula. It is your mind resisting what is. The more your mind resists what is, the greater the degree of suffering you experience. The less your mind resists what is, the less you experience suffering. And this is another thing that when the Buddha taught this, he didn't teach it as, it wasn't a take my word for it kind of thing. It was a, look for yourself, try it for yourself, examine it for yourself, until you become absolutely convinced through your own experience and through paying attention that this is really true. That absolutely every time I suffer, it's because my mind is resisting something. Now, of course, what you're going to say, what Chris would say if I give you a chance is yes, but I tried and I can't. I can't make myself stop resisting it. As long as you're standing on my toe, I still want you to get off. So, the, the third truth is the, the truth about the end of suffering. And that is it's, uh, that the reason that you can't make your mind stop resisting is because of, because your mind is operating on deluded beliefs. Your mind is operating from a place of misunderstanding of how things really are. It's, your mind is ignorant of how things really are, and ignorance always comes with its flip side, which is, since you don't understand how things really are, you have a, a mistaken understanding of how things really are. You have delusion. So ignorance and delusion, as long as your mind is operating at a deep unconscious level from this place of delusion, from the standpoint of consciousness, you can't convince your mind to stop resisting and make the suffering go away. Well, you can. You can do it, but only for a brief, sometimes only for a moment, sometimes only for five minutes. Or if it's something your mind is really, really attached to, maybe you can't even make it let go of it for a moment. But the point of the second truth is if you can make it let go of it for even a moment, a moment of non-resistance is a moment of no suffering. Five minutes of non-resistance is five minutes of no suffering. So, when you understand the second truth, then you move on to the third truth that, okay, the only way that I can bring about a permanent end to craving, craving is a resistance to what is, and the only way I can bring about a permanent end to craving and a permanent end to suffering is to Eliminate the delusion and overcome the ignorance. So wisdom is the answer. When wisdom brings about complete and permanent end of craving, there is also a complete and permanent end to suffering. That is the third truth. Not 
the end of craving is the end of suffering. Because that's too glib and it doesn't give you anything useful. What the Buddha taught was something useful. That when wisdom brings about the permanent end of ignorance and delusion, then there's a permanent end of craving, and then there's a permanent end of suffering. And then, then the Eightfold Path is all about how do you get there from here. And could you say that the Eightfold Path and everything else that comes after it is nothing more than guidelines to get back to the Four Noble That's right, yes. You could certainly say that, yeah. There's, there's kind of a circularity in the way the Buddha taught this time, uh, which you come to love it after a while. <laughs> so you look the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. And of the eight parts of the Eightfold Path, the very first one is right understanding. And then if you look where Buddha says what right understanding is, he says, right understanding is the four noble truths. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he, he goes on to say it's uh, the Four Noble Truths, it's dependent origination, it's, uh, it's uh, understanding the nature of the, an individual, uh, it's understanding the three characteristics of existence, uh, it's understanding karma. And those are all the things that we're going to be talking about this weekend. I just gave you the agenda for the weekend. We're going to talk about dependent origination. That's really the it's the fundamental it's the it's the fundamental piece that holds the rest of them together, and from which you can actually um, pretty much derive the other ones. It's dependent origination. Then there is the uh, the nature of the individual, the five aggregates, the analysis of what we really are. And then there's the three characteristics of human existence, uh, which are that everything is, well, I was going to say it in the usual way it's translated, everything is impermanent. But what it actually means is radical impermanence. Everything is radically impermanent, which means there are no things, there's only process. Secondly, there is no self. There is no separate abiding self. Not just in you, but in anything or the other way around, not just in anything, but in, in anything including you. There is no separate abiding self. And the third truth is suffering, that the nature of life is such that if you don't understand this, suffering is absolutely inescapable and will permeate every aspect of your life. And so we'll look at that and uh, We'll look at the three characteristics. We'll look at karma. And through karma, we'll understand how, uh, uh, how, how one, one of the ways that you can change yourself. Actually, changing yourself is what the rest of this is about. Right understanding is understanding these things. To begin with, understanding them intellectually so that you can make use of them. Right? It's, uh, you don't have to... You don't have to you don't have to become a scholar of these things. You just have to understand them in a way that you can use them. Uh, and then at the, at the end of the Eightfold Path, you'll have, you'll have the same kind of understanding of these things that the Buddha did that allowed him to teach them. You'll understand them the way, from the gut level. In other words, 
they will be the wisdom that you have. They won't be an intellectual understanding, they'll be wisdom, they'll be true wisdom, they'll determine how you see things. But these other things, what do we call right intention? This is this is a practice. This is once you once you have an understanding, then you try to mold it the way that you view people and things and situations based on that understanding. Then there's a practice of virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood. This is really a powerful practice that you do all day long, every day, that changes the way you are inside and makes you, makes you, it frees you from craving to a tremendous degree. It loosens the bonds that craving has on you and frees you. And it opens you up to the kind of wisdom that you're looking for. It opens you up by loosening your mind's attachment to its own wrong views. And then there's the practice of meditation, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. This is a practice where you train your mind so that you have the kind of experiences and you can understand and appreciate those experiences that will give you direct insight to the way things really are. So, see, see, the fact is that the delusion through which we see the world is, uh, it's such a flawed delusion that the truth is always coming through. But we, we're incapable of recognizing it when it does. But any time the truth leaks through, that's what we call an insight experience. So you're having insight experiences all the time, but you can live your entire life uh, uh, without ever having a single bit of insight. It's this training that allows you to take advantage of these insight experiences so that you can have true insight. So you can see, you can, you can attain the wisdom that we're going to talk about. You can understand in a profound way the way the Buddha did these things that we're going to talk about as, as intellectual understanding. The other thing that meditation does by training the mind is it makes these, it, 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 it does, as I said, make it possible for you to have insight as a result of insight experiences, but it also makes, it, it, it makes much more powerful insight experiences available to your mind. When your mind is disciplined, when you have control over movements of attention, when you can rest in a state of powerful mindfulness, you will have far more powerful insight experiences. And so you can gain insight much more quickly. So that's what this path is about. You have the intellectual understanding, the modification of the view that you hold on a day-to-day -day basis, the changing. These three here, you change your own inner nature. This is really what karma is about. Karma is about changing your own inner nature so that you become a kind of being who is open to insight and open to wisdom and at the same time is, is being less controlled by craving. And then these are the practices you do that allow this to all come together and, and you can achieve that same awakening that the Buddha did. That's the Eightfold Path. Any questions? Please.
ask me some questions. This is where I plan to, I, I plan to, to see, this, this is where we're going to start talking tomorrow, is dependent origination. Uh, Actually, I was... So, I need questions to fill out the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, if someone's standing on my toe, that's ignorant, thank you. Um, that's ignorance because there's really no my... Um, there's a ignorance. There is ignorance behind that. The reason that your mind suffers the way it does with Steve standing on your toe is because it, it believes there's a lie, and it believes that your happiness and your unhappiness come are determined by what happens to the mind. But what we're talking about here is that. Um, if your mind doesn't automatically slip into that place of craving to not have Steve standing on your toe, then you don't, then your mind isn't flooded by that feeling of, oh, this is so terrible and I'm so miserable. Instead, you say, hey, that's not good for my toe. Get off, Steve. <laughs> so that's where you discern how versus, oh my God. I'm going to die. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's how, you know, if I have any sense, I'll do something to change this, if I can, versus, oh my God, I'm going to die. And sometimes you can't do anything to change it. And the thing is, if you, if you have achieved this degree of wisdom that this whole thing is about, and there's something happening to you that's painful, and there's nothing you can do about it, that's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, that's, that's why that's, when you put it that way it's really hard to believe right wow can, you know can you really get to that place but you can I'm just sort of curious so did he do you know did he come up with this sort of de novo and then he taught for 45 years or was it he constantly modified because he found what didn't, didn't work um I, I'm pretty sure he was constantly modifying it, but immediately after his awakening, he had, uh, I think he had a lot of clarity, and the people that he was speaking to were really right, you know. So uh, I think uh, I think it must have taken a long time to, before he could speak to people that were nowhere near that right, and and be able to convey uh, depth of understanding. And the other thing, too, you know, uh, unfortunately, that very first teaching that he gave when he talked before Noble Truth is described as going on over many days. And as he was speaking to the, his five previous companions, they would take turns, one of them would go and get some food, bring it back for the rest, and he, was just, he would just keep on teaching. So they were, they were doing this work for days. But the whole description of that has been condensed down into something that can be recited in, in uh, uh, less than 20 minutes. So a lot got left out. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that... But you had a lot of trial and error probably with other minds. That's right. To see what, what yeah. could stick and what couldn't. And, you know. I, I think with... He, those were good people for him to start with because yeah. they were already pretty, they already knew a lot of the same right. things that he yeah. knew. Yeah. And I think as he moved on, then he, he kept refining it and, and modifying it. But, 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, does does the extinction of suffering take anything away from the person? I mean, is is there supposed to be no purpose to suffering, to the experience of it? No. Uh, there is a purpose to suffering, but the whole point is that we suffering is not necessary to accomplish that purpose. Okay. The reason that you suffer, um, I, uh, suffering is the non-acceptance of what is. And so the reaction to it is to try to change what is, change things. And the whole purpose of suffering is to make us pursue those things that uh, are beneficial to our survival and our reproduction and the survival of our offspring. And to avoid those things that are deleterious to our survival, our reproduction, and the survival of our offspring. Now, it's a program. It's a program that was designed for for fleas and lizards and snakes and horses and all kinds of other beings, who probably wouldn't survive without that program. Without a program that makes them crave, desire, and lust after what tastes a particular way, looks a particular way, feels a particular way, and to avoid uh, try to escape from or even try to destroy what what you know, what feels and looks in, in, in an unpleasant way. Mm -hmm. So that's what it has a purpose. It really has a purpose. But we human beings are unique. We can we can survive. And the Buddha is a proof of it. For forty five years he survived after his awakening. So you don't need to be driven by the compulsion of, of desire and aversion and the suffering that it entails as a human being. We have other faculties that serve all the same purposes. Like Chris can recognize that Steve standing on her toe is not good for her toe, and she can recognize the fact that she really ought to do something about it. She doesn't need to suffer in order for that to happen. Make sense? Yes. You don't lose anything at all. And as a matter of fact, the pain's still there. You know, when when your mother dies, that part of your brain that would make intense grief and suffering is is still going to operate, and you, you're going to go through the things that make grief beneficial. Grief is a beneficial thing. Right? It makes us makes us. It makes us appreciate the person we lost. It also makes us appreciate the people that we still got. It makes us appreciate the life that we still got. It makes us it it it, it makes us be better people and behave in a better way. And so that mechanism's still there. When the Buddha's uh, when his Buddha's chief disciples, uh, Sariputra and uh, uh, Mogalan, thank you. I, I knew he'd know because. <laughs> that's good that's true my memory has little lapses in it but anyway he lost both of his chief's disciples not too long before he died himself and he his mind would have produced the grief response but he wouldn't have experienced suffering from it in, in the sense that you are apparently so is there a contradiction there like you just said his mind would produce grief but not in the sense that his body will produce pain 
but he doesn't suffer in reaction to the pain. So, that so his mind produces a grief reaction, but he doesn't suffer as a result of that grief reaction. If you can understand it in pain, you ought to be able to understand it. Can you understand it in terms of pain? You can feel a pain and say, oh, that's an unpleasant sensation. Yeah, I'd rather it not feel that way. But you don't need to suffer, you don't need to be miserable. Uh, as a matter of fact, you continue to be happy even though you have the pain. So is it kind of like a, a detachment? It's like looking back and it's like, okay, so here's the object and I'm analyzing it and then I'm stepping back and I'm like, I'm not necessarily drawn to it, I'm not necessarily like focusing on it, I'm not necessarily like emphasizing on it, I'm just, it, it's just there. Yeah, you're talking about the pain? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right, it's just there, exactly. It's just there, and you can choose to disregard it. That's exactly how it is. You can, you can choose to disregard it. But you feel it. And, you know, to the extent that pain serves a purpose, it's to warn you that maybe you should do something about something. But of course, then there's the times that you have pain and there's nothing you can do about it. So, what it means is because you still experience pain, you have all the benefit. You know something's wrong, and if there's something you can do about it, you can do something about it. But it has the added advantage that pain normally doesn't, which that if there's nothing you can do about it, then you can just accept it and let it be. And still be happy. Uh, I said that I think, you know, mental suffering is a lot, it takes a lot more reflection to really understand mental suffering. But grief is one that I think that you can do this with. I think anybody can. Anyone who has experienced grief, you know that you have those moments where the suffering is gone, the grief is still there, in, 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 but it's no longer a suffering. I mean, I'm not talking about there are those times in the day that you forget that your beloved is dead. I'm not talking about those times. I'm talking about those times that you know, you're, you're present with the fact, but it's not hurting right now because I'm in a place of acceptance. And as you overcome grief the time, those periods become more frequent and they last longer. And so you have a taste of what it would be like to, uh, to be free from suffering. When you, when you have a physical pain and in those moments when you can just accept it and let it be, that's what it's like. When if you're experiencing grief and in those moments when you can just accept it and let it be, not that you've forgotten it, but you know it's there. That's what it's like. So is that, um, could you apply that to uh, what you said? Because there is no things, there is just a process. Is There's that what you're no, talking about? There is no things. I think that's what you said. Oh. There's no Yeah, we'll be getting into that. There are no things. There's only process. Um, Is that kind of along the lines of that? Well, the thing is that when you realize there are no things, there is only process, then it makes it much easier to accept the part of the process that you're experiencing in the moment. Yeah. Maybe in a sense, uh, a thing could be the suffering, uh, the way... Suffering would be conceptualized could become like a thing. Well, that is exactly what happens. Is that what 
what you do is you conceptualize the I, this is happening to me, and then you conceptualize what's happening to you, this is the, this is the thing that's happening to me, and then you make the subjective experience that you're having as a result of that into the into into the dominant reality of the moment. That my whole world is this misery that comes because this thing is happening to me. That's reification. When we talk about the twelve links of dependent origination, that's what's called clinging. It's when your mind makes makes it into that kind of reality and it is absolutely, it is where, in the, uh, uh, we'll talk about this probably on Sunday afternoon. We talk about uh, Sunday afternoon if I get through things fast enough, and Sunday afternoon if I don't hit it, too, go too fast and hit it Sunday morning. We'll talk about the 12 links of dependent origination. You'll see that craving leads to clinging, and clinging leads to becoming. And that's how we come to suffer. The craving arises, we do that reification, just as you as you picked up on, you know, and then we become the suffering entity. That's, that's what we are in that moment. Yes. So, um, not to get too heavy about this, but um, is there in the in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, is the purpose of the purpose of life? Is that Revealed in here, or is that also a thing that's not really real? Well, the purpose of life. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the really an important part of suffering is the existential suffering that comes from wanting some meaning and purpose. I mean, this is the situation. You're born, you suffer, and you die. My God, this is In between, maybe you have some kids. For what? So they can suffer and die. And maybe make some grandkids who will suffer and die. Maybe make you suffer. <laughs> and, and so, one of the things you like one of the things your mind wants to do is it wants to find some meaning, some purpose, some explanation, something that will make this all right, something that will justify this. You know, uh, if you go to the doctor, the doctor can do something and it hurts you, but as long as you know that the purpose of it is to make you feel better tomorrow, you're willing to do it. And your mind would love to find an explanation that applies to the suffering in life that way. And that's what the search for meaning is. It's uh, in, in its uh, immature form. Is the is this the search for this kind of, of meaning? If you look at myth and stories and things like that, like the hero discovers that he has a destiny, right? That oh, all this stuff that he goes through, all this stuff that he has to do, everything that he sets in. It has a purpose, it has a meaning, and we love that. Because we're looking for that in our life. And that's what we go to religion for. Okay, you know, tell me, what is the meaning and purpose? So that I can feel better about this. Well, when you achieve genuine wisdom, you don't need that 
life has a meaning and purpose. But all of these other meanings and purposes are grounded in the view that I am the separate self that this stuff is happening to, and I want to know why. And you step completely outside of that. And then everything has a meaning and purpose that cannot be understood from that self-centered point of view. Now, somebody who understands that might, might put it in words, and you might, but the, whatever words they put it into is going to be very, very easy for you to misinterpret and, and misunderstand. The, the ultimate meaning and purpose of everything is that it is. And that's really easy to misunderstand. Or another way of putting it is that the meaning of life is the meaning that you give to it. But that can that can turn into a kind of nihilistic, hedonistic, I guess I do any damn thing that I want if it's not understood properly. But but there is with true wisdom, life has meaning and purpose. Now there are ways that I can put it, I think, that you can relate to. The meaning and purpose of an awakened being's life derives from compassion. They, their existence becomes an expression of compassion, of love. And that's why the Buddha talked for 45 years. The meaning of his life was to help lead other people out of their own suffering. But it's not it's not the kind of it's not the kind of meaning that we in our immature minds are trying to to find. It's like trying to explain to someone what it feels like to be a parent. Yeah. Before becoming one. Yeah. Or yeah, or anything that like that that you could think of a lot of examples. Something that you can't really that you can't really describe in words because the person that you're talking to doesn't have the right meaning to attach to the words that you use. Yeah. So, so this, this weekend, I'm kind of finishing up. For a couple of years now, I've been presenting the, the, Buddhist, the Buddha's Dharma teachings to, to you, to this group in different ways. And this, I'm kind of drawing it all together here this weekend. And I hope it, I hope it comes across really clearly. Because where I intend to move in the future is these other seven parts of the Eightfold Path. I mean, we started with meditation. I came here as a meditation teacher, and teaching meditation. When we get back to meditation again, we're going to get back to it uh, I, when I say when we get back to it as the main thrust of my teaching, we're going to get back to it where you are coming from a really different place than you were probably coming from when you first decided to take an interest in meditation. In between, we're going to we're going to talk about how you modify your your view of reality and other people and the things that happen to you. 
we're going to talk about how you use karmas to change, to change yourself, move yourself away from suffering and in the direction of nirvana. When we talk about right livelihood, we're going to end up talking about what it means to be an engaged Buddhist, engaged in the world. Because if you understand these things that we're going to talk about up here, right understanding, all these things that we're going to be summarizing and getting into in depth this weekend, that you are part, and an, an inseparable part, of an indivisible whole, then it is not possible to understand that and not be an, a socially engaged Buddhist. And so that's what we'll talk about here. Right livelihood, it's often thought of as, okay, that means you don't make your living as a mercenary or selling <laughs> drugs or alcohol or things like that. You know, but it doesn't. Right livelihood means uh, how do you live? How do you get from one place to another? What do you eat? Where do you live? How do you stay warm? How do you dress? How do you, an important part of your livelihood are your social interactions. Uh, we, we are not nearly as independent as we would, as we would like to believe. And uh, anybody who thinks so needs to go off by themselves with nothing but a shirt on their back and a pair of pants and maybe a pocket knife and live alone in the mountains for a year. And then come back and tell me how independent you are. So our social interactions are an extremely important part of your livelihood. Your survival is how you live. You can't live independent of social interactions. So you can't practice right livelihood without taking your social interactions into account. That's part of it. So when we get to right livelihood, I don't know how many weeks or months from now, that, that's what we're going to be talking about engaged Buddhism. So I'm hoping that the next seven parts of the Eightfold Path don't take two years each. <laughs> but on the positive side I've never been able to stay strictly within the bounds of anything so we'll actually be talking about everything all the way along <laughs> I look forward to seeing you again tomorrow morning and I uh, hope you have a very pleasant evening if you have Opportunity, you might look over to the, to the uh, second part of the handout uh, so that you're, you're, you're very, very okay, to go. Three, yeah. What's that? It, we have it. We have to Yes. Okay. <laughs> so if you're, yeah, be, sh be sure to remember to pick up on on the way out. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.